Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He koonai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai. I'm Alison Balance and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. Last week, we heard from an earthquake engineer about some of the things that earthquakes in the last decade have taught us. Today, our focus on developing a more resilient society looks at buildings with Canterbury University's Jeff Rogers, who starts by explaining how our expectation of what is a safe building has changed. It's dating back several decades now, but really this idea that we want to go beyond just life safety. So the, obviously the conventional thinking has been um, that you're going to have to accept some level of damage will occur during a large earthquake and to design the building with a hierarchy of strength. And that's really accepting that some damage may occur in a beam and basically that, that would then uh, give way and, and suffer a little bit of damage in the beam, the horizontal beam element that supports the floor, at a level of demand which is less than that, which would cause damage to the column. And that's really based around protecting the columns which carry the loads down to the foundation, and that's been to prevent collapse. And that has overall worked very well worldwide in terms of uh, preventing collapse and, and allowing safe egress out of a building following an earthquake for occupants. But then, they, as has been seen here in Christchurch and around the world, um, it leads to demolition and it hinders the response of the community. So trying to go beyond code minimum, um, so trying to incorporate low damage aspects. Yeah, obviously, life safety still has to be absolutely the top priority. But in addition to that, also seeing that a building isn't severely damaged after an earthquake. So this is about putting somehow sacrificial elements in that you can easily come in and fix, replace? Yeah, certainly sacrificial elements is one one aspect. So there's always been an element that there will be a sacrificial component, and that sacrificial component has traditionally been one of the structural members. The trouble is that can't be changed out. So you can move to a a sacrificial component, which can be more easily replaced. So rather than being a, a key structural element, it's actually an additional component. But essentially the building can maintain all its gravity load paths and everything um, with one component being changed out. The the next step is to actually go to something that doesn't suffer any damage. So there is ways of absorbing energy and transferring load, providing force-limiting fuses and things, uh, but doing that in a way where there's no damage. So in a way that you don't necessarily have to go in and actually replace anything after an earthquake. So that's you know, different levels of objectives, you know, more and more higher performance, Obviously, a, a replaceable sacrificial component is better than the structural element, but something that actually doesn't suffer damage and doesn't need any maintenance after an earthquake is better again. Because this is tricky, because you basically have to design a building that can move in some way. It's got to be able to move in response to an earthquake. Yeah, it's one of those things that if you just make the building more and more rigid, you increase the demand a lot, and you can also increase the accelerations that are felt by occupants. So there is uh, Northridge Hospital is the, the classic example in the field where they, initially they had a building which was damaged, they made a very, very stiff, rigid building, and the building itself stood up quite well, but then a lot of the non-structural elements, the cemented ceilings, the partition walls, huge damage to all those things. And Unfortunately, you do have this issue where when you go to a higher performance objective, it 
comes to a point you need to address the next weakest link in the chain. Um, so obviously the, the immediate occupancy is the ideal outcome, where essentially immediately after an earthquake the building is entirely usable and maybe it gets evacuated for a quick inspection, but then we can come back in. But for that to occur, everything needs to survive really well. So the, not just the primary structure coming through without damage, you also need all the non-structural components, all the fire protection, all the acoustic insulation, all of these things have to perform so unfortunately when you go to a high performance objective you basically get a higher demand on all those things um, under the conventional thinking if you're only looking at life safety and allowing egress out of the building if the acoustic insulation is is impaired or if you've got damage to your partition walls and your doors don't open and shut nicely none of that really matters but when you're trying to, to strive for more then all those things start to come back into play What's happened here in Christchurch? Because I'm sitting talking to you in Christchurch. It's been 10 years since the first Darfield earthquake and then followed six months later by the Christchurch earthquake. Um, What's different now about the buildings that are being built in Christchurch? Are we building these new low-damage buildings? So there is a a lot more low-damage design being used within the rebuild of Christchurch. So at the time of the earthquakes in 2010 and 2011, the Christchurch Women's Hospital was the only base isolated building in Christchurch. So there was, we had one base isolated building. The last time I looked at it, I think there was about 16. So that is a significant advance, uh, and that will certainly help base isolations sort of widely regarded as one of the gold standards. Quickly remind me how it works. So this is essentially um, providing a decoupling between the, the ground and the building. So now we essentially some, some relative horizontal motion. So rather than forcing the entire building to move with the ground as it shakes, essentially allowing the building to stay more or less where it is and just allowing the ground to shake horizontally underneath it. So that just means that the, the large horizontal shaking that gets created during an earthquake doesn't actually get transmitted up into the building. It's attenuated out through that isolation layer. So a well-known example of that in Wellington's Te Papa. Yes, it is. What other things are you seeing being introduced here? There's also um, concepts like uh, rocking frames. So essentially, rather than accepting that you're going to damage and, and deform a structural element, you can have sort of a controlled rocking. And this is actually quite a low level of rocking. We might have a wall that is actually um, decoupled from the foundation, so rather than actually being intrinsically connected into the foundation, you've actually got a, a break point there, which is controlled, so it can't slide or, or walk its way away as it rocks back and forward. What we normally see there is that they might be held down with a, a steel tendon, so it's a bit like an elastic band made of high-strength steel that clamps everything down. So under a low level of demand, such as in a windstorm or a low level of earthquake, it will behave just like a conventional structure where the wall's linked directly into the foundation. At a really high level of demand, under a really strong earthquake, there'll just be this little movement will act at the base. So when you say rocking, it really is a bit like a rocking chair. It's it is a bit, yeah. back and forth. Yes. So essentially realising that if, if you're in a boxing ring and someone punches you, the worst thing you can do in terms of feeling that is to stand hard up against the punch. Like any impact, you know, if you, if you move a little bit with it, that cushions it. We can't now and can't ever control the way in which the ground shakes. And what we can do is control the way in which buildings interact with that ground shaking. So every earthquake is different. Um, The one thing we know for sure is that the next earthquake won't be the same as any earthquake we've had before. But they do have broad characteristics. So we know broadly how the natural period of vibration of a building, how that interacts with the the ground shaking, controlling where the natural period of the building sits relative to the likely frequency content that's going to be in the ground. So traditionally under the old sacrificial damage approach, 
um, the, the damage that occurs within a building does have some advantages in that the building softens a little bit as it undergoes that damage, which actually lengthens the period. And at the longer period of vibration, there's actually less intensity in the ground shaking. So the, while it, the damage has a significant problem in terms of long-term recovery of the society, it does have some really good advantageous characteristics in terms of how the building responds within the earthquake. So it's really capturing that same advantageous relationship, but doing so without the damage. So where's your research got to in this area? Where are you up to? It's certainly a team effort. It's, <laughs> no one operates in isolation because essentially you've got people all over the world, um, particularly around the Pacific Rim. Oh, that'll be the Pacific Ring of Fire then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> brought together by a, a common threat from, from Mother Nature. So a lot of the um, large-scale large shake table tests that we're doing to, to test design methods at a whole of building level are occurring in, in China at Tongji University. So they have a, a really large shake table there that's, that's um, well beyond anything we have in New Zealand. So what is a shake table? Is just what it sounds like? Yeah, it's a, a large steel table with a lot of hydraulic actuators in it and it basically shakes the, the table back and forward to simulate ground shaking. So how big is this table in China? Uh, so they, they actually have four individual tables that set up in a, a big long trough so they can actually simulate bridge tests as well if they want to space out underneath a bridge pier. The, the payload of the tables is 140 tonne, so it is a pretty significant amount of weight that you're shaking around. The hydraulics that you use to drive that uh, peak out about three, three megawatt of electricity that it draws, so it's a significant power draw. So do you build scale models in a way and then subject them to different kinds of earthquakes on this table? So there are a few ways of doing it. One is to, to have scale models and, and do just that. The other thing is, at a smaller level, you can actually do a full-scale test. So, one of the And you've done one of those? We did, yep. So a few years ago, we had uh, a large test that was actually funded by the MB Building System Performance, um, along with some co-funding from China. And it was a 10-metre by 6-metre footprint, uh, 9 metres tall, basically a full-scale of a, a small building. Incorporate a lot of the New Zealand... The, low damage design details which have been used in New Zealand and was testing that at a, a system level whole of building test. So what were some of those individual things that were incorporated into that building? So one of the key things was um, the reinforced concrete rocking walls so that was the, the same design detail we've talked about, just actually proving that at a full scale. There's also some beam column connection details, so where the horizontal beam frames into the vertical column. Um, there were some some particular design details there to, to reduce damage, both to the, the structural frame and also to the floors. You put the building on the shake table, then what did you do? So it went through 39 different earthquakes, um, different intensities, some at very high intensity, and it was also a lot of different design configurations, so we could basically experimentally prove the impact of different design assumptions and the different design details. And did you have it rigged out with sensors so you can d- collect data on what's happening? Yeah, we did. <laughs> we had 380 channels of data coming off that, so we were recording accelerations, uh, displacements, strains, all sorts of things from all over the structure. So very, very high density of, of sensors in there to really understand the way in which the building behaved. And did the components behave the way you expected them to? Yes, overall they did. It was great. And so what's happening next? That that was a single building that, that behaved well. Are you going to go and use the shake table again? I'm involved in two more tests that are coming up, um, one being a scaled-down high-rise. That's a one-fifth scale of a, a high-rise. That's actually a project with the University of British Columbia in Vancouver and also Tongshi University in 
Shanghai, China, and that's taking what's traditionally sort of a, a construction method that's applicable worldwide, but is, is used more in Vancouver, and looking at ways to modify that to make that design more resilient. And then that's actually a one-fifth scale of the, the high-rise. So it's still 16, 17 metres tall, 140 tonne, and um, it's still a significant thing to be shaking around. Is it going to get 39 earthquakes too? It will certainly. Um, it'll be that. Hopefully, more if we can if we can get the budget to stretch to to cover all the lab fees. Hopefully, we'll go beyond that as well. It must take a, a bit of time to do this because you you need to do one earthquake simulation and then stop and measure and test. I would think, and before you can do the next one. The table we use doesn't actually have vertical accelerations. It can't can't shake vertically, but it has both horizontal directions. So we we'll tend to shake it in one direction. And then we'll shake it in the other independently and then also shake it in simultaneously in both directions because it's very easy when you design these things to sort of think about the two, the two directions independently. But, of course, in the real world is 3D and things actually shake in 3D when they go. Um, while 39 earthquakes, at, you know, even at 30 seconds of time, that's, <laughs> that's only 14 minutes of actual true testing that, that spread over several weeks. What magnitude earthquake could you test up to? It's always hard to link to a particular magnitude because um, it's, it's both the magnitude and the, the distance from it. We were certainly shaking up to levels beyond that which were seen in Christchurch in 2011. So you can vary the shaking. Do you vary the period as well so that you know it might be a slow shake versus a fast shake? So what we tend to do in, um, is we, we take earthquake records which have been recorded around the world. So um, El Centro in the US and late... 1980s is one that gets used very, very widely. It has quite broad frequency content in it. We essentially chose a few recorded earthquakes from around the world which matched largely the New Zealand design spectrum. So that's sort of earthquakes which are broadly representative of the type of earthquake that we designed to in New Zealand. So you've got an apartment building in China to test what, what else? We've got another test coming up which is a steel building using a lot of the latest design um, concepts and low damage steel construction in New Zealand. What's going to happen the ne- in the next few decades, do you think? Is there going to be some great leaps forward or will it just be continual incremental refinement? So there's a lot of ongoing work in terms of um, petition walls, ceilings, piping, all those things, in terms of the non-structural elements that, that go into a building. So um, that's a huge area of ongoing work. It's obviously happening anyway. There is low-damaged buildings going ahead, but there could be more incentives and, and, and more ways to facilitate wider use of that. So at the moment there's no requirement for it? No, there's no requirement to, to go beyond sort of the, the code-compliant building is really one that's life-safe. There's not really uh, any requirement to go beyond that. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff Rogers is an earthquake engineer at the University of Canterbury and a member of Quake Corps. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 17th of December 2020. You can listen again at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. I'm off air for the next few weeks having a southern summer break, but there is plenty of audio on that webpage to keep you entertained for hours and days and probably even weeks. The Summer Science Collection is a curated selection of favourite stories from the past year. Find it under the Collections tab. Also check out the Podcasts tab at rnz.co.nz. You will find some great audio and video series there on a very diverse range of topics. We are on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. 
Many thanks for your company. Stay safe, have a great summer, and catch you next year. Kia pai tō rā.